There it is. All right, we are back. We are rested. Uh, at least I am. Uh, it is going to be a great show, everybody. Thank you all, as always, for joining. And you know what? Let's cut to the chase. Let's just dive right in. Here we go. Practicing polyamory. Real-life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. All right, all right, we are back. It has been a beautiful weekend. I don't know about all of you, but I had a great one. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome back to this beautiful Monday, beautiful start to a new week. Before we jump in and chat with today's awesome guest, I want to quickly remind everybody that we are open for questions. If you have any questions about your relationships or if you have a specific topic that you'd like to bring onto the show, shoot me a DM. Head on over to your favorite social media we're everywhere at Practicing Poly A. Uh, slide into my DMs and, you know, let me know what you want to talk about. Don't forget also to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, wherever it is that you download the podcast. And remember, this show is recorded live. So not only can you send me a DM, but if you're watching right now, you can ask a question and get your answer live on the show. So do that. Have fun. Join in. We're here. Let's do this. As always, I want to remind you that if you are listening to this podcast, you are a welcome guest to be on the show. We are here to share stories, and I want to get as many voices as possible to speak here because I know that the more stories we hear, the more representation we'll have, the more others will see us in themselves, and the more we can strengthen our community. So go to practicingpolyamory.com and sign up today. All right, that is my spiel. And now for the best part of the show, introducing our awesome guest. Today's awesome guest is a polyamorous, pansexual researcher, scholar, and mental health provider who loves to make her own, well, everything. From espresso to home improvement and to psychology and relationships, our guest has found creative ways to make each of these passions her own. As a psychologist and professor, our guest is constantly in a state of both study and teaching. She's recently completed a significant research project around compersion and is working on a book about CNM affirming clinical practices. So it's clear that everything she learns, she loves to share. Luckily, she's here to share with us today. Success in polyam relationships can be challenging, but our guest knows that if each person brings their full authentic self, hard-earned and born from self-reflection, vulnerability, and learning to set good boundaries, we can forge wonderful, successful re relationships with one another and, most importantly, with ourselves. I'm excited to learn from this super knowledgeable, most intriguing guest who's joining us today out of Nashville, Tennessee, but based in Dayton, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Michelle Vaughn. There it is, Michelle. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you for spending part of your day with us today and sharing your vast wealth of knowledge. Great to be here, and I'm eager for the conversation. <laughs> me too, me too. So uh, as you know, we were talking before the show, and you shared with me uh, when you filled out the, the thing for the show, uh, you wrote a paper on compersion. Let's just dive right into that. Tell me what it is that inspired you to specifically dig on this topic. Sure. Uh, well, a couple different things. Um, so I, I really uh, enjoy being a, a scholar within the 
community and I like to do projects that combines that um, find um, fields in psychology, combined ideas in innovative ways, and mm -hmm. have a couple set of special skills. So I know how to develop measures, so psychological measures, which is kind of a large process and many people don't want to do it. And I love contributing to a new field. Uh, and one of those fields is actually, you know, is understandably consensual non-monogamy. So uh, we, we had a sense, I met another scholar and was like, hey, what, you know, there's not a lot of compersion. I'm interested in compersion. I'm interested in it too. There's no way to measure this. So you can't really mm -hmm. advance certain types of research until you have a way of assessing something. And I go, you know what? I got the skills for that. Let's make a measure of compersion. I think that was two years ago, maybe a little bit more. It all kind of goes together. Um, and now we have this little, I like to think of it as a little child. Uh, we've created something <laughs> in the world that folks get, will be able to, to take if they want or use in therapy, use for their own reflection or use for research and learn about what the heck compersion is and kind of how it operates mm -hmm. uh, in the process. So I just think that's exciting. It absolutely is. I mean, I think one of the more more exciting parts of it, and this is coming from a uh, project manager background, oh. If it can be measured, it can be improved, right? So that's like the constant saying for, for us project managers. If it can be measured, it can be improved. Um, so psychological measurements, this is obviously not specific to just compersion. How does that come about? How, how do we measure our psychology or, or whatever? Yeah. Explain that to me. Sure. Yeah, there's a different way you can measure things. The most common one that people have from, you know, have some familiarity with is mostly these are self-report measures where you're given items and you're given this little scale from zero or one to five and you rate yourself on a series of items. And when a scale is constructed, you know, um, scientifically, you know, those items, we can say how many things are in that scale? Is compersion one thing? Is it two things? Is it three things? And then you can also measure... Um, the different types or flavors of compersion, how they relate to each other and how they relate to other things. Uh, and the big thing, the big question we had was like, how's this gonna relate to jealousy? Because people have a have mm -hmm. an idea and they talk about it in a certain way, but until you have a numerical quantitative measure, you can't really evaluate how specifically it measure it relates to jealousy across people. There's no way to do it until you have a measure. So it all is kind of subjective, right? If I am having a particularly good day, then I might rate myself, I don't know, high or low on, on the compersion scale. I guess high on the compersion scale, feeling really good. But if I'm having a particularly bad day, I might score myself lower. Uh, that seems to me like it might throw off the accuracy of the, of the test if I'm having a good day or a bad day. Well, this is a good question. So one of the big questions, which we don't know yet, we didn't look at is, is compersion stable over time? Is it like mm. a trait? Are you always similarly compersive across days and across your partner's other partners, your metamors? Mm. Or does it really vary? We know what predicts it at one point in time, but we didn't assess people, the same folks giving reporting on the same um, metamor across multiple times. So we don't know if it is a trait or a state, if it's stable or if it's variable. Um, but you said something else. I was trying to think of when you were talking about compersion. Uh, we do know how compersion generates to your overall positive mood. Because some people go, just you're just a happy person. You, if you're happy for your partners, other partners, you're happy. Maybe you're just like a cheery, optimistic person. Mm -hmm. um, and that, it's not the same thing. It overlaps a little bit. But it's not just, oh, I'm a, I'm a perky, happy person. 
It's more than that. It seems unique. It didn't overlap with all the other measures. It's not the opposite of of things like jealousy, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't overlap so much. It seems to be its own unique thing that nobody's really studying in all of psychology. Not, not. But you are now. Yeah, which is really wild. You know, it is fun to do something that doesn't appear to be done before or done in a different Mm -hmm. way. And then, um, you know, all, all the folks I know, all my friends, all my psych nerdy friends, all my therapist friends, my polyamorous nerdy friends uh, love to like make jokes about the measure and talk about how it relates. Because there were some quirky things that showed up when we made this. What were some of those quirky things? Well, the first thing is like there's some there's some interviews where they've asked people or just kind of come up in other published stuff. How do you describe conversion? So we had all these positive, warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing when we went in is we thought there might be like four, five, or six types of compersion kind of flavors, like maybe different intensity of positive moods, right? Uh, But what was really interesting is when we did all the fancy stats with all the items that I I, I made and uh, the other author helped kind of revise, there was a type of compersion that showed up, a flavor of compersion that people don't really talk about as a separate experience. And that was uh, uh, what we call arousal compersion, which is sexual compersion for your Mm -hmm, partners mm -hmm. and partners. Right. So the idea came up is, I guess lust is an emotion because it popped up as its own separate things, but kind of, you know, lust and and, uh, arousal, thinking about your partner with other folks Uh is its own little special flavor. And not everybody has it or has very much of it, but it's completely, it's very different than the other kind of two parts of compersion. Right. And it's really the context, like the really is the three things that kind of distinguish the fl- three flavors, right? But people have not talked about like the the sexual aspects of conversion as a separate thing. You you are saying flavors of conversion, compl- types of conversion, and it sounded like uh, you mentioned that there are three. So arousal conversion, the sexual conversion. What would be the other the other two? Uh, the the first one is kind of what we kind of expected is a sense of uh, happiness and just general positive emotions about your partner's other existing relationships. So a lot of things go into there. Happiness, joy, sense of uh, I'm pleased, I'm grateful. Um, The second uh, flavor is really about anticipation, right? And this is where you can make a nice Rocky Horror Picture Show joke. It's all about when your partner's like going out on that first date, just flirting with somebody when it's a possibility for them. Mm -hmm. And the excitement, the joy people feel that your partner Mm. like may have a hookup or may have a new relationship. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That seems so special thing. It, it's just funny. I'm, I'm like thinking of things that that uh, happened for me o- over the weekend, and uh, kind of feeling all of those things: uh, the arousal, compersion, the anticipation, compersion. Mm-hmm. Like those are all things that are that are happening in my life right now. Um, and the general one. I mean, I guess that one's more of that. Uh, it, it seems to me. That the general compersion, that's the the more kind of common, just everyday, uh, you know, people who maybe struggle with jealousy, they want to, to at least feel this general compersion of happiness for their partners when they're in other relationships. Um, but of course, it's not always possible. Like, not everybody feels that or, you know, sh- nor should it be a... Uh, requirement necessarily, but I, I, I feel like a lot of people would want to feel that. Mm-hmm. 
is there any way for somebody who is just struggling with that emotion with you know the jealousy and everything to kind of get towards compersion to make the to make that that jump it's probably one of the the next things that folks are going to pick up because then you can say hey i'm going to try this i'm going to try this activity i'm going to try this intervention i'm going to affects it or what correlates with it as a therapist certainly in the back of mind i'm like we when we write my my co-author is not a therapist and i'm like oh this is going to turn into how do we increase this we must need to increase it like more is better um there's some things from other areas of of mental health that might be applicable so there's possibilities but we don't have anything that's you know evidence-based you could say hey we've done a study we've shown this could help conversion um but we do know in general what helps cultivate positive emotions right okay so you could extrapolate and you'd say hey what generally helps people extrapolate you know develop positive emotions and, and there's some indicators of things that correlate to conversion that su- kind of suggest some things that could interfere, right? Um, so one of the one of the other fields I do a lot of work is, in is something called positive psychology, which is kind of how it sounds, right? How do you how do you promote and celebrate and honor kind of really good human functioning, really positive mm-hmm. outcomes? That's all about you know positive emotions, a big piece of it. So um, some of the the pieces they try, which in my mind would overlap when we talk about in the paper. Um, deliberately practicing gratitude so reflecting and being mm-hmm. grateful and in a genuine way if it's fake it's not going to feel right right like what can you really appreciate from your partner's other partner right what do you appreciate they bring to your partner's life what do you like about them really connecting into like really authentic experiences of emotion for them might promote that conversion right mm-hmm. um that's a certain that's a big one that makes a lot of sense and we would think that would work as well. Uh, and then we find a couple other links to um, pieces like relationship satisfaction. So people have more compersion when they're happier with their relationship with that partner. So okay. it's like, what's good for the relationship, right, is probably good for your feelings about the other partner. When you're happy, when you're content, when you feel like things are going, it's a lot easier to feel positive things toward these these uh, third, fourth hand, third hand metamorphs, mm-hmm. right? So when you work on the relationship and you feel secure in it, it can be beneficial for feelings toward that metamorph. That makes, makes yeah, of course it does. Yeah, of course. When you're feeling good about mm-hmm. your relationship, it's easier for you to be happy. It'd be easier for me to be happy about my partner's other relationships. And if I wasn't feeling good about my relationship, then I'd start to feel really insecure and worried and scared and all these different things. How did you find or what did you find about these different types of compersion as far as like, did people feel more of one type than any other? Well, there we look at kind of the the average scores across people. What's nice is, so this is like a three-part study. So the first thing we did is we went and um, we kind of, we asked people, tell us about experiences of compersion, write down what they feel like and look like to you. So we had their words. And then we made the items based on that. And then once we had all these sample positive items, uh, we gave them to a different sample of folks. And then we saw how the the items kind of um, themselves. And that's how we find the three types, right? So this has all been through several hundred participants, all different forms of consensual non-monogamy, right? Mm -hmm. All adults. So it wasn't Um, all polyamory. There was like swinging and other things involved. Not all polyamory. I think majority, half were polyamorous. And then we looked at differences across open folks in open relationships, swingers, 
uh, polyamorous folks, there were no differences in the scores because you would go, hey, I wonder if swingers feel more sexual compersion. That seems like an obvious question. Yeah, right. We didn't see any mean differences at all. Hmm. Not based on the type of consensual non-monogamy you practice. Right. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say uh, the different types of, of compersion, though. Th- there had to be, like, differences, right? People feel one more than another? Well, not not according to the type of uh, relationship uh, style they practice. Right, right. So that was surprising to me. I looked at that several times. And, you know, still. But we had, uh, I forget how many folks. We had you know, several dozen people in open relationships and swingers and more polyamorous people. Uh but no differences in the kind of average scores. So that's really interesting because the the stereotype and the image of, oh, poly people are all about the warm, fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. emotional feelings. And swingers place a higher importance on the sexual component. And right. I don't know if that's, t- in, in terms of outcomes, I don't necessarily, uh, you don't have any support that the emotional experience is different across these types. That is super yeah. interesting. That's what really interesting. It? Yeah. What was really curious too, so didn't expect this at all. So once we had all this stuff done, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm looking at going to another conference. Um, we have some data here we haven't used. And I went to see if it was um, the the three types um, were different, higher or lower across different demographic groups, right? Mm-hmm. You got a lot of queer people in here. We have a lot of uh, transgender folks, binary, non-binary folks. Not a lot of people of color. Not mm-hmm. Not great with that. Like, hey, I wonder if there's differences across kind of orientation and gender identity. And that's where there were differences. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, tell me more about that. Um, So it was interesting. It really didn't depend on the type, but that folks whose sexual orientation uh, wasn't binary. So like pansexual folks, bisexual folks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, more than folks, more than hetero folks, more than gay and lesbian folks. So if their sexuality was, um, I'm trying to think of the non, the non nerdy way. Fluid. Sort of fluid. Not, not restricted to one gender. If their okay. attractions were beyond one gender, they tended to score higher across the three scales of conversion. Interesting. Like, yeah. And that was like, well, this is interesting. And the non-binary folks compared to all other binary folks, um, they also had higher conversion. And the trans folks, all the trans folks over all the cisgender folks. So there's huh. something, um, you know, having an experience in the world where you're you're marginalized and also you're you're not in a binary category, like folks who are willing and, and embracing parts of themselves that really don't fit within kind of traditional society um, are reporting more conversion. Very interesting. I, yeah, I, I, quite know I have a theory. Yes, I have a theory. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I mean, uh, so when it comes to like, it just 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 thinking bisexual, pansexual, anything like that, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, we're they're marginalized, and so they mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, this. They have a desire to have different needs filled by different just genders, right? And just at at a minimum, right? But. And so if they're able to see their partner getting different needs filled, whether it's by other genders or by anything else, they're like, okay, well, they're, they're getting that. And I would want that too. I would want to be able to have all of this. Yeah. Maybe they have a, a different emotional appreciation or they're more tuned into 
uh, joy for their partner because they know what it's like to have the world restrict them, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. About their feelings, about their attractions, about the type of intimacy they want. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that, how do, how do you measure that, right? How do you measure what's about that? We, how do you we measure also that? like, yeah, so some of my other work was on um, folks and positive psych. So all the great things about queer people, basically, and how they might be like really awesome at certain things that straight and cis aren't. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of overlap, obviously, between queer people and consensually non-monogamous people. Yep. Um, and so my mind went to that and I'm like, I've studied that before. I've done scholarship on that. And there is a little, there is some some data, some some ways that people describe that when you're a member of a marginalized group, you're often, especially if you're out, right? You know that, you've disclosed that. You're really tuned in to your emotional states, your desires. You're pretty self-aware. Mm -hmm. And when you're self-aware of your own internal states and your wants and needs um, and had an environment where you could be honest and open about those, you might be really tuned into other people's feelings. You might be putting yes. yourself in their other shoes. You might be really tuned into their joy. You might, you might also really be emotionally tuned into when other people are feeling authentic because they get to have something in a relationship they really want. That's like called a social or emotional intelligence. Yep. So I'm also wondering whether that's kind of a link there. We didn't have a measure of that, but that, um, should I find the time to do another study? <laughs> I'm like, is that an explanation for that relationship? It definitely makes sense. I mean... I feel like the, the the queer people that I've met and and gotten to know definitely do have uh, more of that connection. Like they're they're able to uh, empathize more. It it seems like, and there's just more of that. Um, I don't know, care for humanity. I guess yeah. at a minimum. Yeah, I think it's like you you've had to be tuned into yourself, and then often. I mean guarantee but on average might you be more tuned into others you've also had needed to read the room and read other people to decide whether they're safe and comfortable for you right. to be genuine with yep. so you're very kind of emotionally attuned partially for survival um but also for your own development um yep yeah you mentioned empathy that was one of the other things we actually put in the study is we wanted to see oh. if compersion was just empathy okay um, for your partner and it overlapped but it's not the same thing it's not the same thing. How's it different? Mm -mm. So it has like a positive correlation, but it's not so high that it's the same construct or idea. So it could help being em being empathetic, mm -hmm. tend to have more compersion, but it's not so that it's a synonym. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I had a guest who um, I think he described compersion as like joyful empathy. I, I want to say that's what he said. Uh, and that might have been you know, something along those lines, but it's not quite the same. It's just, it's different enough. Um, as you're, as you're talking, you're talking about the, the importance of that self-reflection, the importance of that self-awareness. Um, and I guess, you know, as we're talking about it, how, are there any exercises that you, uh, that you give people any any exercises that you that you take people through to kind of help them get into that um self-reflective self-awareness mode to be able to answer these questions and give you these measure these measurements objectively there are well that's part of you know how the questions are set up to have folks think about a specific uh partner metamorph relationship so it's kind of built in imagine this person pick a pick a partner pick a metamorph to reflect on um, when you ask that question, I think about it as a therapist and if mm -hmm. with using this in the room with folks, which I haven't you know, had a chance to do, just hadn't feel like a priority for them. 
I always think about open questions and kind of living some space for it. So I, first I would kind of start really broad because I don't want to assume that people feel compersion. I don't want to put right. pressure or expectation that you need to, or it's better than, especially when that comes from somebody in a therapist. Ooh, that might feel like a yep. door. So I'd want to understand their emotional experience with partners and how complicated or messy they might be, how they might differ across each partner and each metamor. Um, but I might do, uh, it really helps to kind of tie into to experiences to imagine a setting where, where an emotion was really strong to kind of connect to it. So like imagine the time, um, you know, imagine the time you maybe most strong, uh, pick a partner, pick a metamor, uh, and imagine that situation or that moment where you felt the strongest kind of positive emotions, right? And then to have them to kind of describe that, right? What was happening? What were you feeling in your body, right? Uh, brainstorming a little bit of what those emotions might be, trying to find the accurate word for it, mm -hmm. right? And also to really cultivate that. So that's kind of part of some of the um, activities uh, for cultivating positive emotions. It really genuinely fosters that emotion and then dwelling in it, right? Giving you some time to soak into the positive emotion um, so you can recognize it, so you can understand what promotes it. Um, yeah, and the idea the more time you spend kind of reflecting and thinking about a positive emotion might increase the likelihood you feel it more. Nice. Yeah. So kind of practicing, yeah. Might practicing. be journaling, talking out loud about it, right? Remembering an instance where you were just joyous or happy for that partner and that other metamor. Nice, nice. It's going back to that and, and remembering. Um, as you were talking, you said, you know, that you didn't want to just assume that the person felt compersion at all. Mm -hmm. In your study, what did you find as far as the percentage of people that do and don't feel compersion? Mm -hmm. So what's nice is each of the three kind of flavors several items for it right so you have like this is their average score there's also a range which means some people went through all the items because we didn't tell them it was about compersion we didn't want to go oh only if you feel compersion if you feel a lot of compersion should you answer these items we said hey do you have a, a partner at least one other partner are you over the age of 18 we're doing a study on relationships right mm -hmm. so we had folks who took the measures and they're like there's only one or two of these things that i feel or uh, I really don't, most of these things don't click for me, but this one or two items. So what we found is I think across the items, I think it was, I think it was over maybe 75 or 80% of folks at least said, you know, anywhere each, each one of the flavors had maybe between three items and uh, five items in the final version. And almost everybody said, I felt a little bit of this at least once. Right. Mm -hmm. So people who are on the extreme of conversion are probably fairly rare. Right? It might depend on the partner. And people absolutely low. I've never felt even a hint of this across either of the the, the three flavors are also probably kind of rare. Most mm -hmm. people are somewhere in the middle. Right? It's kind of a scale, just like everything else. Yeah, it's on a scale. And so when you get the responses back, there's a lot of people in the middle. And mm -hmm. there's little people on the ends and on the the, the tail of the ends. And it's also interesting because you answer, ask them these questions. And usually, you know, put a little comment box. And then some folks will go, well, I, I said, I don't feel this, right? Like, wh what does that mean? Are you gonna, like, is this wrong? I'm like, no, you just don't feel it. That may mm. just not be your experience or just the partner in the metamor you you picked, you just may not feel that way towards them. That's just how it is. Makes sense, it happens. What is the overall mission? What's the overall goal of mm -hmm. this study? 
uh, and the paper that you write, the, the, what's the purpose behind it all? Like, what are you really driving at? I think the, the overarching, it's a couple things. So first is to, to be able to expand. If we want to know more about compersion, what it is, how to facilitate it, how to understand it, what it's not, you have to have a quantitative measure. So we, mm-hmm. we you can't advance research, right? And we can't have kind of minimum <laughs> uh, studies we need and the types of studies we need to say, hey, this might help with compersion or this is what how it operates until you have a way to assess it, right? So this kind of, it's a new tool for researchers, for therapists. Um, again, we it's it's uh, there's a link I can send to folks for uh, put the PDF, take the measure yourself, right? And folks can have those items and use them for self-reflection. But it means to advance this area in um, research on consensual non-monogamy where people have, maybe, there's maybe five or six studies that have talked about conversion, but none of the quantitative way to measure it until now. Um, and we think that's going to promote understanding and maybe it's going to promote appreciation of this, this phenomenon that seems kind of unique, um, get more attention for that. And then ideally be able to go, hey, how do we use this knowledge to maybe improve folks' lives? Um, and I always think about that in terms of uh, a therapist, because there's a lot of there's an explosion of research on consensual non-monogamy. And it's all it's very nicely done. There's a lot of folks who are in the community doing that scholarship. That's really nice. And I think, I think it has tons and tons of applications, but um, I certainly think that the biggest one is thinking about research on the idea that you could use it in a therapy room, or you could use it for your own just curiosity and self-assessment. But if there's if you don't have a way of assessing it, we can't really do scholarship about it, and we don't right. know a lot about it. Then. Yeah, are there are there similar studies of measuring emotions? Like, is there a study out there that measures? anger that measures sadness that measures like do do people do these kind of quantitative studies of emotions or is this kind of unique to to what you've got going on yeah there's a whole field of uh usually it's in social psychology there's people who are just emotion researchers and they research all sorts of emotions so you have a scale for almost any other emotion you can think of one of the scales we used was uh, so there's generally positive emotions and negative ones um so you can find big, broad scales, or you can get to very specific scales. There's a jealousy scale, right? Uh, there probably is an anger scale. We don't use that too much. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is there's some there's good things about uh, those big, broad emotional questions, but just no one's really touched compersion in the same way. Uh, and people assume positive emotions and negative emotions, that if you feel one, if you're high in one, that you're low in the other, which is not true at all. It's more, if you have lots of feelings, you tend to be higher in both. So they're not opposites. And Mm -hmm. most people don't know that, but that's because we have these measures of emotion. Like, well, actually, if people are high on jealousy, sometimes they're high on excitement too. Yeah. So we have broad measures of emotions and they've been around for decades. Um, The the first jealousy motion, you know, measure I think we looked at was maybe made in the Mm -hmm. eighties. Almost all the other emotions have their own scale that have been tested and validated and used forever. But this is since it's its own little unique flavor, there wasn't anything like it. We could just compare it to a big, broad measure of positive feelings. Um, Love it. Yeah. But it's kind of of interesting because most of those emotion researchers don't know about consensual Mm non-monogamy, aren't thinking mm -hmm. about that context, don't have that experience. Right. They're kind of in that monogamous, you know, zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, compersion still isn't in the dictionary. Whenever I type it up, anywhere it still gets the red squiggly line underneath 
So, you know, it's hard to uh, quantify something that's not even a word technically yet. Yeah. All words are made up, but, you know. Um, wow. So this has been super enlightening. Um, is there anything that I missed? Anything that I forgot to ask you? Anything that you wish that I had asked you or just final thoughts that you would like to leave with the audience? I think those are the big, broad, broad pieces. Uh, I'm just really excited to see how people will use this tool. I, I think there's the opportunity um, for discussing this, you know, in their poly communities and their their polyamorous relationships, just to be um, self-reflecting about it uh, well. And especially, I think, I want to say again, that tentativeness of it's not that more compersion is better and everyone needs to feel compersion or you're a bad person in a relationship. Um, if it's something that exists for you, if it's something you try to want to facilitate in a genuine, authentic way, um, this might provide some some insight and foster some curiosity. But I think to proceed gently. Um, and, you know, one of the things I do in my everyday life, you know, in addition to all those other 17 roles, is I train future psychologists. So right now I'm kind of, I'm hoping and waiting slowly to get more folks who want to go into this field, who want to advance that research figure out what to do with that as a clinician. That's what I do most of the time is train future psychologists. Nice. And I, I would love to have a, I don't want to say an army, uh, a, a collaborative <laughs> of consensually non-monogamous psychologists who I'm like, let's, let's, let's create more and more that um, folks can go and have a really good experience in therapy. That's my, my long-term life goal is to be working that. with tons of folks who want to do that work and maybe, you know, do a little bit more of this research and add to it as well. Mm -hmm. Try to make the world a better place. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There you go. I'm, I'm good with the army and, uh, you know, that's definitely goals. All right, Michelle. Well, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I feel like I know more about the way that this study is going. I'm looking forward, like you said, to seeing more and seeing how uh, people use it. Um, where can people find you, find this research? Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, I don't know if you have uh, any openings as, as a psychologist or whatever. Uh, how can people find you and what can you provide for them? Sure. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest way. Uh, overly, uh, overly busy academic. I don't <laughs> put together a lot of my social media that's professional, but the, the Twitter is the most professional thing. Uh, people can go if they're interested. I'm pretty easy to track down if they're interested in um, uh, going into the profession. Uh, that also means I could also shoot my email if people want to get their hands on the measure. If you're not a, an academic or a student where you can get it through the library, um, I can send people the measure if they want to assess themselves for their own fun. Or you can, you know, send me a message on on Twitter and we can figure out how to how to get it to you. I don't think I can upload PDFs on Twitter. I don't think that happens. But I'd be more than to uh, share that if people want to, because you can just take it. Very easy to figure out what your scores are right and reflect you don't need a big to do that i'm definitely that's curious about it yeah absolutely uh and uh yeah at this point because i do have a, a private practice it's very tiny it's usually very full i'm working on a book right now so uh not really having openings i'm also one of the few so you think of a psychologist doing polyamory and you think i'm a relationship therapist which i am not so i get tons of requests to do things i'm not trained to do so got I'm it take those yeah yeah. There you go. Makes so, sense. Uh, yeah. So Twitter's the the best way. 
uh, I'm pretty easy to, to track down first and last name to find my uh, my email. But certainly uh, if folks want to uh, send me a, a note on Twitter or tag me and I can get you a copy of the measure and or the full article if you want to nerd out on it. Perfect. And uh, that Twitter is for our listening audience um, at Michelle DV PhD. That's uh, Delta Victor PhD. All right. Well, Michelle, this has been so fun. Um, again, I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you. This has been really cool. And, and I will definitely uh, send you a DM on Twitter to get access to that, uh, to that study, the measurement. I'm curious for myself, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And you could just take it repeatedly with each partner and each metamor and compare your scores and just notice how they're different. I think that, that yeah. might be curious as well. For sure. Do you want us to send you results or anything? Like, is this still an ongoing no. thing? Does it help you in any way? I'm not collecting data on anymore. The the other, the first author of the project uh, also is, is, is doing another project on CNM that I'm not on. I don't know if it's using the compression scale or not. I might I might retweet that study in the next week. So if people follow me on Twitter, they'll see if they want to uh, check out that investigation. But I'm not sure it might be sure. But cool. I'm not certain. Cool. We'll figure it out. And uh, again, just thank you so much for hanging out and for sharing, like I said, your wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. <laughs> All right, and thank you as always to our live audience for tuning in today. As a reminder, when we're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same can't be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday or sign up for our Patreon where you'll get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and wherever it is that you download your podcast if you haven't already, and please leave us a review. We will really appreciate it. All right, everybody, that is all we've got. Thank you all. As always, and thank you again, Michelle. Until next time. Have a nice day. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.